Okay, so <clears throat> we're back again on Standardized English, JPD Gerald, your host. Um, this is part three of a three-part series where I'm sort of going through my entire journey as a doctoral student. Um, I started in the first episode four weeks ago talking about um, deciding to apply to school in the process and then uh, my first year. And then I talked about my beginnings of publication up to I got the book deal at the end of 2020. Or I guess it was maybe January 2021. And now I'm going to talk about writing the book and my dissertation. Um, well, not the, I didn't finish writing the dissertation, but the process of doing the proposals and everything. Um, and it's going to be a lot about process. If you're not interested in the process of organizing your time and so forth, this is not necessarily going to be an interesting one for you. But if you like the show, skip to the very end because I'm going to tell you I got an announcement to make about my show. If you could support the show on Patreon, I greatly appreciate it. The link is in the description. So where did I leave off? Uh, so, book deal. This is with a, a language publisher. And like I said, I just sort of grafted the language aspect onto sort of, I was working on something with whiteness and ability and intelligence. And I just sort of, I had, um, at my school, they allow you to do two independent studies in your doctoral program, which is not that many, honestly. I wish I could have done more. I ended up doing more because my school at some point realized it was best with me as a student to just leave me alone, uh, which not everybody gets. I think my, the school, if the school's interest is in developing scholars and they probably saw that I was developing into one, uh, it was best to leave me alone rather than make me take a class I didn't want to take. Um, although I did eventually have to take one I didn't want to take. But anyway, so I, uh, in that independent study, um, I, was, I was writing this like 20-page, uh, 25-page. When I say page, I mean like single-spaced um, essay about whiteness And I was using the DSM definition of antisocial personality disorder. Now, how did this happen? Because this is weird, right? People who don't know what my book is about, the book is called Antisocial Language Teaching. Um, so in the summer of 2020, Tucker Carlson, you know, said something about protesters, BLM protesters, and called them antisocial. He said they're antisocial people who don't care about society. Now that sounds like, oh, dog whistle, whatever, whatever, right? I thought the antisocial part was interesting. And, uh, you know, he called them antisocial thugs. And my original article was called antisocial thugs. But honestly, the thugs thing has kind of been covered. You all know that thugs is a dog whistle for black people, right? Um, so I mentioned that in what I wrote, but I was really more interested in the antisocial part. I, the word antisocial has, I feel like, and I got, you know, I don't, I don't know how to measure this. You can use, you can use Google engrams, but that's really just books. So I don't know how to measure how often this, but in the discourse, I have seen antisocial thrown around a lot lately. It's interesting because when I was growing up, I didn't realize it had a medical connotation. Maybe antisocial personality disorder is new, but, um, or relatively new, but like, you know, when I was a kid, I said, oh, she's antisocial, he's antisocial. That's not what antisocial means. That's asocial, right? Like someone who doesn't want to go to a party, kind of like my wife, is not antisocial. Well, not because of that. I'm not calling my wife antisocial. You know what I mean? Um, that's just they're asocial or introverted or whatever you want to call it. They just don't want to socialize. But they don't want other people's socializing to be ruined, right? And if you think about it, the way that these words sort of, Uh, are defined. What antisocial is trying to mean is people who are against society, right? People whose behavior disrupts society. And you can you see that in the Tucker Carlson quote where he says there's people who don't have no stake in society, right? That's he means antisocial quite literally, anti-society. Um, now, it could just be a flourish and he didn't write it, his writers did, but Uh, I thought that was interesting because then when you, you know, you go and actually look at what the DSM says about antisocial personality disorder. And let me tell you, this def these definitions, the, the symptoms, they're so vague. One of them is like lying. I mean, it's more extensive than that, but it's basically like one of them is just like lying. One of them is not being able to hold down a job, which I can understand. There's seven of them, right? And it's, it says you have to have five to be diagnosed, whatever. But like, 
I can understand how all these things together will paint the image of somebody who, you know, is not fit for X, Y, and Z. But like each of these things is pretty interpretive. There's no like, I'm not saying the test can be biased, but there's no objective measurement of like this person doesn't care about overall society. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and that is, of course, because the DSM is made by a certain group of people. And my argument before I even get into the language stuff is that based on the DSM, based on white psychologists, right, white researchers being black, being disabled, speaking different languages, depending on what languages they are, actually kind of fits the definition if you look at it through a certain lens, right? The way that blackness, that disability, that uh, unstandardized English, plug for the show, uh, has been constructed over decades, actually paints them as being or representing antisocial behavior. Now, that's the premise of the book, so you have to read it to see if you agree with me or not. And I am making a point of saying I am not trusting the DSM. My point is that the patholo I talk about this a lot, the pathologization of whiteness, right? Whiteness pathologizes blackness, it pathologizes disability, it pathologizes language <clears throat> on standardized languaging, right? And it uses that pathology as a justification for the English language teaching industry. Without that pathology, which is the centering of whiteness, right? Without that pathology, we don't have an industry the way we have it today. And my point, I go through a very complicated, because that's the way I write, um, explanation of the connection between whiteness, blackness, disability, language, um, and then the second section, that's the first section of the book, and the second section of the book is going through the seven symptoms of antisocial personality disorder and mapping them onto aspects of the English language teaching industry. Um, I'm not telling you what they are. You have to read the book. And then in the third section, I bring in my actual research from my dissertation and so forth, um, although I wrote it before I got IRB approval, which I'll get to, and uh, so I didn't quote them directly. Maybe I'll be able to do it now because I have done the IRB stuff, but I don't know. We'll see. I'm, I'm going to, as you listen to this in February, I'm about to edit the book because I'm about to get the manuscript back for round two, and hopefully they don't evis eviscerate it because I think that, you know, I'm sure there are parts where they might think my argument could be stronger, but I think the format of it is unique. I think the way I tell the story is unique, and you know, I think I'll always cherish this raw version that I wrote. We'll see. I went back and read it, and I thought that I would hate it, and it's actually I really like it a lot. I mean, I don't like everything I write, but like I think it's really good. There's only three or four things that would change, and they're not major. I would change the very ending uh, because I had an anecdote in there, and I have a better anecdote now. Uh, so. Anyway, that's the premise of the book. But anyway, so they told me to uh, propose some things to them. They, the woman wanted me to, she wanted to publish my work. She was interested in my work. And I, you know, I've had a lot of people kind of screw me over in terms of these things. People, someone who's an editor for Educational Researcher said, Justin, do you want to write an article for Educational Researcher? And I never would have thought to apply for Educational Researcher. They write a whole bunch of really standard stuff. Yeah, they're top of the H index. And you know, I don't believe in the H index and all that. And in fact, a year ago, I was recording an episode all about how this was bullshit. But how do you say no to someone who is saying you should write this? Now she's one of the editors. She can't pick the article, right? Uh, but she says, write it. I wrote it. I showed it to her. She made a few small comments, right? And then I sent it out. And then it didn't even get into a revise and resubmit. Now, I understand that that is possible. If you're blindly submitting something, you have an article rejected. But here's the thing. They didn't like the way I wrote it. Which is fine, but like I knew that the way I write things is not the way that they publish. So why am I being asked to do these things? And the same thing has happened to me a couple of other times. There was a special issue where people were really, I told you, I'm going to write this article in this way. And they said, this is really exciting. And then I did it and they didn't like it. I don't know what to tell people sometimes. Like I'm very open about my style, my preferences, whatever. And it's fine if that does not work for people. It doesn't have to work for people. But if I tell you I'm going to do X and then I do X, you can't be like, oh my God, I don't like X. I'm like, I told you I was going to do it. You know, um, I don't, I'm not trying to subvert people. This is the same reason I'm really upfront saying why I talk about whiteness and, and not even just racism, but whiteness itself, because then people can't be surprised. Nobody comes to my talks or my presentations like, what's, what's he going to talk about? It's in the title. 
Anyone who knows anything about the work I do understands what I'm doing. Uh, I don't go in there talking about diversity and then I spring whiteness on them, right? It wouldn't work. They probably wouldn't respond. They'd be all very confused. So I don't get it. And this has happened to me maybe four or five times with my writing or my work is that people are like, I want you and I want your style and I want you to do it your way. And then I do it and they're like, they get cold feet or something. It's just, it ends up wasting my time and I don't fucking like it. If you don't like what I do, fine. I really am okay with that. My work isn't for everybody. But don't tell me to do the thing that I do and then be annoyed that I did the thing that I told you I was going to do in the exact way that I told you. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. These are random fucking people, right? The reviewers. I don't know who they are. It's, it's blind. But they're not. I mean, it's possible that they are the biggest people in the field. But let me tell you, when I, was, when I work openly, like when I'm writing a chapter, right, the editors sometimes have harsh comments but they're constructive and they know who I am. They know where I'm coming from. The three chapters I've written so far, I think I'm actually about to write a fourth one, but um, depending on when you listen to this, I have three chapters that are presumably coming out sometime this year. I wrote them in 2020, but you know how academia is. And they knew who I was the whole time. And the editors picked at and had me change things. And I didn't like every comment, but I didn't argue with them. And you know, we went back and forth a few times and then they came out to what I think are really good uh, chapters. So, uh, and let me tell you, two of the people who are editing me were uh, Dr. Cheryl Matias and Dr. Paul Gorski, which if you know anything about whiteness research or race research, like these are two of the people, right? So all I know is when random motherfuckers don't like my writing, they don't, and specifically don't like my style. It's one, again, it's one thing to think that I should change something for my argument to be stronger. That is always okay with me. But I'm very upfront that I have a style. And frankly, I don't, I can't write in a different style, not because I'm some artist, probably because it's a limitation of my disability where I, I only have one voice here. I can't really inhabit other voices very well or, or write in a very detached way. I could do it, but it won't be very good. When I try to write a quantitative paper, I don't do a very good job. Um, so all I know is if Cheryl Matias and Paul Gorski think them at writing and they gave me very few comments i mean they told me you should add this you should cite this this is normal stuff right i have received the most comments and the most nitpicking from people where i'm just like what have you ever written that i should trust you're looking at this from a purely i don't know formulaic standpoint and i don't fit the formula and that's right i do not fit the formula i don't know i think people people think that academic writing should be a certain way and i disagree and some people don't like it Fine. I'm ranting here. But I say all this to say, I didn't know what I was doing when I got the book contract. So they told me, why don't you fill out a proposal? Um, and they and they showed me another one. So I just followed that. That proposal said that their book would be 70,000 words. So I said, yeah, okay, 70,000 words. Or no, I said 75. Um, and then it said a bunch of things. I gave them the specific outline of all the chapters, which is what I wrote. I wrote exactly what I said I was going to write. Um, and and then, uh, I mean, I changed some of the subtitles, but you know what I mean. Um, and then, you know, they sent me back the thing. The contract is shitty, but it's not uniquely shitty. Um, I, I'm not telling you exactly what's in it, but the percent that I get from each book sold is not high. <laughs> my goal as i've said is to to tour whether that's virtually especially because it's technically a british publisher i can't really be they're not going to fly me from to U, the uk but like um you know to go quote unquote on tour and if i sell a book i would much rather sell some of the consulting stuff i do and then you know like i say if i if i sell 20 books and that's mostly money for the publisher uh i can however sell one person on consulting and it, you know, so I think I might actually be able to make something off of it, but it would be through, through the other stuff that I do. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but I suddenly had to write an entire book and I was nearing the end of my third year of my doctoral program, and I also was working on my comp exams. Now, in my program, the comp exams were done differently. It was not you have two weeks to write every book you've ever written, and then, and I think that's dumb. I uh, hate, sorry, not that word. I think that's silly. It's, 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 it's ridiculous. It's not a good way to evaluate people. Um, 
And so basically they told me the comps would turn into my proposal for the dissertation. So I was just writing up like what I planned to do. And I tried to make it like the way that I write. I tried to, I, t- I quote unquote, took an academic walk. As in I went through everything that I had, that had influenced the work I was going to do. Um, and it, that part is still in the dissertation as of now, the academic walk through everything that I learned because, and I'll get to this in a second, part of it's about me. Um, and so the literature isn't, I hate literature reviews where it's just like, this is the stuff that people want me to cite. So here's a list of shit. Like literature reviews, you know, I feel like the, you don't use something if it's not part of your argument. You know what I'm saying? Um, so um, suddenly, as of the end of January in 2021, I had to write a book and I said, how am I going to do this? So I told myself, because I still had to write my comps, and I still had to write, I was working on some other papers, you know, and I still had one class that was a, oh my god, Jedi, which was Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion class. We did read some interesting stuff, but a lot of it was kind of 101. Like, I had I had read most of it, and I'd done most of it, so I just didn't do what they wanted me to do. I told the professors at the beginning, yeah. I'm going to do this instead. And they were like, sure, fine. So I just wrote a paper for one of those special issues I told you about where they were really excited about what I was going to write and then they didn't like it. And so, you know, I wanted to be part of the special issue. The special issue editors who had been really excited about it rejected it. And then it was just going to be part of some random British journal. And then I said no. And then the editor was disappointed because she wanted it. But I was like, nah, man, if if I'm choosing to do free labor for you, I want something out of it, even if it's not money. So... What I wanted was to be part of that special issue. If I'm not going to be part of that special issue, I'm not putting my shit in a random nonprofit journal. It was a, a, a the article was about nonprofits um, in the UK. That I don't no no no, uh, especially if we have to completely change the format, right? So, uh, but anyway, I was doing that at the same time. And of course, this whole time I'm recording a podcast and Ezel's growing. This was when it was really becoming tough. We'd been inside for almost a year at this point, right? Like obviously you could go outside, but it was cold. So there wasn't that much outside. We moved within our building to a larger apartment, which is why I'm able to record these in a separate room now. Um, and then, you know, Ezel's, he's getting big, you know, he's crawling all over the place. Um, no matter what's going on, he wants to come in the room. We didn't have a daycare yet. Uh, and so suddenly I'm like, I have to, okay, so I'm writing, and I, I said twice a week, uh, usually Monday or Tuesday and Saturday, I was going to write a thousand words each of these nights, um, which left me time because all these committees I'm still on, all these other things I'm doing, you know, and I said, and I did that methodically. So starting the, the last Saturday, well, I, I, some of them I used in the intro, I used part of a, a short blog post I wrote some other time. So I know that the first several thousand words I kind of had a template for, but then I was just right. And then the first section I was based off of that article, that, that sort of 20 page thing I had written the previous fall. So I had, I had, I had a lot to it, but um, the spine was there. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I really did exactly that. I wrote pretty much exactly 2,000 words a week. I mean, obviously, if I needed to finish a paragraph, finish a paragraph. But, I mean, like, I, I, I wrote pretty much exactly 2,000 words a week through the entire uh, first section of the book. And the way I thought of it was that each section would be about 20,000 words. And then there'd be an intro and a conclusion. And... Probably there'd be a little spillover here or there, and it ended up being about 76,000 words altogether. But anyways, the point is, 10 weeks, I wrote the first section. And then I gave myself, as I said, I gave myself a week to edit and a week off, and I started the next section. So basically, if you look at the end of January, 10 weeks is basically April. So it was basically mid-April when I finished the first section, and I didn't do anything faster then. I I just was doing that, I was doing my work, and that was it. Uh, around this time I finished my comps, uh, I passed with very small revisions. I had picked my committee, which includes the woman, Dr. Catherine Vulgaridis, who I've been working with. She's the one who introduced me to the disability studies. Um, and I've been working with her, well, it's not that long now, but two years. Uh, and then one person I've worked with since I started the program who taught us, uh, you know, sort of policy class. And he's, you know, sort of an older white fellow, but he, he, he likes my work. And I feel like if I, if my work can get past him, then it can get past the people out there. 
then we get along. So that worked. And then another guy who worked, who's in the University of Northern Iowa, which let me tell you, when I think about academic places, I don't want to live, you know, more power to him. But uh, especially because he's not a straight white man. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so he's he knows Ka- uh, Catherine or Dr. V, as I call her, because I still find it weird to call people by their first name. Um, and he, uh, so he's the third person on the committee. So I found the committee and I had a bunch of nonsense to do to officially get it approved. But, you know, by the end of the semester, it was done. And I was a doctoral candidate. Um, so in May, started part two of the book. And it all was pretty easy. I'm telling you, this is eventually going to get more complicated. And in the summer, I was supposed to turn it into a proposal. So I had a bunch to add. We had to do this thing called a prospectus, which was like a short version of the comps. And it had some things in it, like what format we were going to do. So I went back and forth in this format. In my program, you have two options. You can do a traditional dissertation and you could do, or you could do three articles, right? Um, And my original plan was to do three articles uh, because I like articles, whatever. I I went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But the three articles thing... um, Partly I was into it because I thought it'd be shorter and I knew I was writing a book and I was just like, I don't have time. Uh, but then I also said, and this is what they kept telling me is like, there, that is always an option. But if you go through the comps and the proposal, the way it worked is you pretty much wrote the first three chapters already. You just have to write the, you have to change the, like all the stuff in parts one, two, and three, you're saying, I will do, I think, not I think, but I plan to. And then when you submit the actual thing, you're saying, here's what I did, past tense. So you got to change it a little bit based on things. And you're saying like, I plan to have 20 interviews. Turns out you have 10. Okay. So the, you know, but the, the broad strokes of one, two, and three are done, right? So then I'm really only writing the findings and the conclusion. And I said, eventually, like I was tired. Like when I was thinking about it, I said, I cannot. What started to happen is that early in 2021, especially, I kept, I just, because I didn't know what would happen and I still don't know what's going to happen with my jobs in the future, I just kept applying for writing opportunities. I said, what will happen? They'll all say no. And they all said yes. I think people respect my work aside from the editors they find to disagree with it. But, you know, the people who start these projects, they like my work and they come looking for me. Um, And that's cool. I wonder how much is tokenization, but I like writing. Uh, And what that means is, and I, I knew this would happen, like I knew it. It seemed like between May and July, five projects said yes to me. They shouldn't have all been then. Many of them were delayed because academia. But all of a sudden, I was like, how on God's green earth am I going to write all of this, finish a book, and write a dissertation? I still have not quite figured that out because there are projects swirling around right now. But the two big ones, the book and the dissertation, I have been managing to juggle pretty well. Um, So I'm still trying to write a couple of thousand words a week, but then... The only thing I had to do over the summer was turn my comps into a proposal. And I had a lot of thinking to do, but I didn't have that much writing to do. I planned a dissertation proposal defense for the day after Labor Day, which means that really for most of the summer, I I didn't have that much writing to do. I went back and forth with my advisor a couple of times and I changed a few things, but like just word word creation wasn't that much. Wasn't that much. Uh, You know... The comps were about 30 pages. And then because I added a lot more in the methods of like what I was going to do, you know, my proposal all said and done was about, I don't know, 55 pages. And so I wrote like 20 pages. But again, 20 pages over in semesters isn't that much. And this was double spaced, right? You know? So uh, I spent the summer like, I have time now. All those projects that had come to fruition, they weren't due for several months. So I put them on a spreadsheet and said, I'll do this at this point, this at this point, this point, this point, this point. And let me tell you, I just got into high gear with that book. I wrote part one from the end of January to April. I wrote part two from early May 
to early July, which is two months as opposed to three. And then I wrote part three and the conclusion between mid-July and I finished, I sent that thing in on August 17th. Like I went, I had scheduled weeks and weeks of revisions and revisions. But when I get into revising, like I go fast. Like I get, I, I really enjoy it. I don't think too much. I don't. Maybe that makes me lazy, but, uh, you know, when I'm on a roll, I'm on a fucking roll. You know, I talk about the bullet train. The bullet train was on point with this book. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, then I went away for a week and I got a lot of extra time to write, although that trip was cut short a little bit. But, like, I did a lot of writing while we were away um, at night. It was one day day when I wrote 6,000 words. Um, Something like that. And then once I started seeing the finish line creep up, I kept, I, got, I got going even faster. My original plan, based on the 2,000 words a week for a 76,000-word book, well, it was supposed to, I, I was aiming for 75, and it was pretty close to it because I think that also includes the uh, references. Um, my plan was for that to take me like 35 weeks with, um, you know, two weeks in itself, add four more weeks because I was going to take two weeks off in between parts one and two and two and three. So that's 39 weeks. Uh, And then, you know, several weeks of revisions afterwards, which would have been like 42 weeks. And, you know, I had about a year. My deadline was February 1st to send it in. So I basically had, I started writing about exactly a year before I was supposed to turn it in, which is, you know, 52, 53 weeks. I turned that thing in five and a half months early. You know, I emailed it. I, my contract said that on August 1st, I had to give them an update to confirm I was on the path because academics don't like to do things on time. Um, and in July, I told them, yeah, I'm about halfway. I'm a little bit more than halfway done because I was a little bit more than halfway done in July. But then I wrote the, the second half in like five weeks. Um, now, of course, if it was my job to just write books, I could write I could be like James Patterson. I could write a book every two two months if it was my job. Like, you know, if I had, I always have something to say. It doesn't mean it's all going to be good. But like James Patterson, I'm sure it would work for me. I would, I would love if my job was to sit in my apartment and write fucking books all day. Give me, give me that money, somebody. I will sit and write books. And then sometimes I will teach. Because uh, I'll, I'll, I will write. If that's my job, the problem is that I have a, another job <laughs> and a degree. So anyway, um, I handed it to them August 17th, which is five and a half months early. And I moved on with my life. I say, I had bought a, a program called Scrivener, maybe it's Scrivener, which organizes it. And, and it helped me a lot with the formatting um, and the footnotes and the fonts and all that. Although when I edit it, I'm going to have to just edit it in Word, which is annoying because Word is not a good program. Um, but anyway, so... I finally moved on. I wrote, and then around the same time, I worked on draft one of a long journal article, like an eight thousand word. That's a long journal article, eight thousand word journal article. Which I don't, I didn't have any time, and I told my co-author, like, I don't have time for us to do this a normal way. So we recorded a bunch of conversations and edited those dialogues together to submit as a big chunk of our data, which is like what we said we were going to do, except for the recording of the conversations part, we said it was going to be a dialogue and sent that out. Now that actually just came back to us in November. Um, of course it came back to us when I was very busy, um, which is what's happening. Like I did a bunch of the initial drafts and they're all coming back to me at this worst time, like from, from beginning of November to really much, pretty much right as you're listening to this, like from for the last three months, I've been in the deepest of the dissertation holes um, now, by the time you hear this, I might have done what I did and saw the finish line and, 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 and written faster because that's what I tend to do. But I don't, I don't, I don't want to assume that that's what occurred. I don't know. You can ask me. You can find me on Twitter. Anyway, uh, so I wrote another article with a co- colleague and then I prepared for my dissertation proposal defense and I defended it the day after Labor Day. Great. So the next thing that comes after that is, and oh, I should tell you what's in it, right? I'm not focusing. You know me. Uh, is that I was, I decided over time that, I, that, that all this work I was doing, these whiteness classes, like that's interesting. Because when I told you that I'm explicit in my talks and my writing about whiteness, only certain white people are going to be into that. I have written uh, articles that have been turned down 
almost exclusively because I was upfront that I was talking about whiteness, not even white supremacy, which I think people find it easy to distance from themselves because they're like, well, I'm not a white supremacist. Uh, but like when I talk about whiteness as a concept, people, some people aren't ready for it. Um, which is fine. It's a self-selecting crowd. And I said that self-selection is interesting to me because when I talk about whiteness with a lot of educators, if I'm just in a conversation, first of all, I don't talk about it because I don't trust them. I think that they're going to be offended. Um, and yeah. But when I talk about the connection between whiteness and disability and capitalism and all, all these things. Like there's only, there's a small number of people who uh, are just people on the street who want to have this conversation. And that's fine. I don't need to be friends with everybody. Uh, but that self-selection was interesting to me. I said, who took this class? It's not free. It's not expensive, but it's not free. You know, uh, who would choose to sign up for a class about whiteness, right? Especially educators, because my degree is technically in education. Um, I could have done it, even if not about educators because my class was education and therefore it would have counted as an education study, but I was interested in them. Now, as it turns out, uh, my proposal was that I was going to email everybody who took my ESO project class. So you're listening to this and you didn't take the class. You still could take it, uh, but then you won't be on my dissertation. Uh, and I said, you know, this study is for white educators. So I had to allow people to self-select out because there were some people who took my class who weren't white and some people who weren't educators. Um, I did not specifically target the white educators. Anyway, and the proposal was I was going to interview whoever said yes about, you know, their lives, their backgrounds, um, you know, because sort of, it's this is not one of my research questions, but sort of a implied question is, who is the white teacher who actually commits to anti-racism? What do they have in common, aside from the fact that they're white educators? But I mean, like, is there something in their background? Maybe they're all from cities. Maybe they're all, you know, a certain type of religion. I don't think this is the case. Um, but I'm saying, like, is there some thread I can find, right? And it, would, it might have made sense to do it as a big survey in that way, but I don't think you get really rich information about race and identities through surveys. I just, I mean, if you just want to count, sure. But in terms of stories, and this is a narrative inquiry, you know, thing. Uh, so that's what I decided to do, you know, interview the people who had taken my class. And that's what I put into the uh, protocol. I was also, because I was going through my sort of journey, as I've talked about, of understanding my own disability, which I had not officially declared yet, um, and or sorry, officially had diagnosed yet. And I realized that that was really impacting things because, you know, for much of my life, I really tried to be, I didn't think of it this way, but I was really trying to be included in whiteness. I didn't grow up poor. Um, I, I went to private schools mostly. Um, and like in retrospect, I don't think that that was the best place for me. But, and I don't want to put my son in these situations. I mean, there would be some unique circumstance, like maybe, you know, where that might make the most sense. But uh, I, 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 I'm not planning to send him to any such school. If he's some sort of super athlete in a private college wants to have him, you know, that's a different situation. But like for me, where I think where's the best place for my son is where he's going to be loved and supported, not where he's going to be exceptionalized. And I was exceptionalized in ways that I understood over time were because I was black, but also because I thought about things differently and I struggled with certain things. And the school thought I had a very high IQ, which is true because I memorize things very quickly and I make patterns easily, but there were certain things I couldn't do very well. And mostly I just was told I didn't try hard enough. That I was lazy and uh, I talked out of turn and that sort of thing. And that wasn't just my school, but it was start, started at the school and I started to internalize these things about myself. All this is to say is that the disability that I didn't even know that I had had a huge impact me on all of the many years. And although I didn't quite fit in with the larger crowd in my high school, my sc high school was very small, so it didn't matter. They knew me since I was a kid and they didn't really, they couldn't ostracize me so much. But then when I got to college, I really did not fit in and I really struggled socially until I met certain friends later. But again, even them were not really close anymore. And I think a lot of it was because of my neurology and I tried to fit in and I couldn't fit in very well and so forth, no matter how hard I tried, because basically I uh, was guessing. I was intellectualizing friendship. I was like, if I do, if I do A plus B, then I will get C. You know, I mean, I didn't write this down or anything, but I mean, like, that's what was happening in my head. And then I couldn't figure out why it didn't work. And it was just like, I just wasn't connecting with them psychologically.
Um, and, you know, maybe I would have been accepted into some version of whiteness. Um, not you don't become white, but whiteness as a system, if I hadn't had this disability, right? You know, um, maybe I would have stayed the safe black guy, the black guy that they accepted. I don't know. But the fact is I didn't. And that really affected my whole career. Um, I didn't want to be near, I told this story before in here, but I didn't want to be near my college classmates really. Um, and they were all in like eye banking. Uh, would I have been good at that? I don't know. Doesn't seem like you have to be very smart to do that. You just have to work a lot of long hours. Um, but I didn't want to work with them, so I went to Korea, uh, and then I, you know, kind of came back and all the stuff I did, um, and you know, think jobs I had been very good at. I'm realizing a lot of it was some of the issues with the the impairment that I have, and you know, even when I haven't done well at some more recent jobs, it's been like things where I look back and it's like there was an impairment I was unaware of and I was just getting frustrated with the impairment and it was causing issues professionally. And it's had many issues socially too and set issues at school. Um, so realizing that this was really important and also the way that I write, part of the dissertation is about me. And so I said, part of the findings are going to be about what the interviews with the people say. And part of the findings are going to be about me and my own journey as a doctoral student, as a public scholar right? What I do out in the public, I take every time I give a talk to people, especially if it's online, which of course the vast majority have been, I take notes on like, how did that go? What did I say? What did people say? You know, I'm not recording it per se, although some of them are on YouTube, but uh, what was said, right? And I really try to analyze and reflect on the things that I say. Um, and every time some new thing happens in my writing. I put it in this big, long scholarship notes journal that I have, which is like 85 pages long. And, uh, you know, every, every time, like the creation of the Ezo project, right. With all the whiteness classes, there's a date when I know when that happened, because it's in my scholarship journal. Um, so anyway, part of it's about the interviews and part of it's about me. And I proposed this and I defended it and they liked it. And there we go. So the next stop was the IRB. Now, I had heard horrible things about the IRB process. Horrible things, right? If you take away all the nonsense, at its core, yes, there's an element of protecting people's privacy and confidentiality and all of that, and that's important. And yes, it is, of course, an ass-covering thing by a school. The school doesn't want to get sued. But ultimately, it's like, are you very clear about what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, and the processes you're going to use? If you are very clear, and there, of course, are other things involved, like if I was trying to interview people from the Department of Education, there would be a whole other level of issue there. If I was trying to interview children, that'd be a whole other issue there. But I was not. Not only were they not DOE employees, well, one was a DOE employee, but an employee from, like, Iowa. Um, you know, and also I knew them, right? One of the things that they need to know is how you're going to recruit the people. Well, I already had their email addresses, so I didn't have to go get the email addresses. And how do you, you know, put if you put a flyer up or you send out an email blast or whatever, like that's a whole other level of thing. And I was lucky, but I wasn't lucky because I planned it that way. I heard all the horror stories about people having to get thrown through extra hoops. And I said, I am if I interview the people from my class that I already know, right? This is purposeful sampling, right? I know certain things about them. Uh... It will be easier. And let me tell you, anyone who's listening to this, and if you you definitely are an academic if you're listening to this episode, because no one outside of academia cares about this. Uh, the best project is a done project, <laughs> especially for school. You know, am I going to put the findings from this into journals? Maybe. I hate journals, right? I don't like to, I don't want to give my labor to journals, you know? So maybe it'll be there, but I would rather put it into chapters. Maybe it becomes a second book. I know I, I, I can't, it's not even just an idea. I have a book that will be out. And maybe the second book is about like, who's the white teacher who tries to challenge things? And maybe I do more interviews for that. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I said from my first semester that when I was just speculating in that class, like what I ultimately wanted to do was write books. Um, I didn't know what about. I now know what the first one is about. I actually, and here's a secret I'm letting you secret I'm letting you in on. I don't want to necessarily write a whole bunch of language books unless I get a job as a language professor, which I'm not necessarily planning on. But if I were to get that, well then sure. But like 
that book, people, you need to read this book. That book is kind of a kiss off to language education. Like, it's like, look, here's a bunch of ideas I have about how you can salvage this broken thing. Not language, but the ELT industry. If you don't take my advice, well, that's your fault. And, you know, it will continue to be terrible. But uh, if maybe we can move forward into things, you know, then then we have uh, some progress we can make. It's basically a challenge to the ELT industry. It's a challenge. You know, it's a call to action and a challenge to itself. Uh, and if I get a language, edu- you know, language professor type of job, then I will be able to say, all right, I said this, you know, burn this whole thing down. Here's what I put forth as new ideas. And I could write a whole bunch of books about new language ideas. But if that doesn't happen, I will have plenty of directions to go to because I always have ideas about things related to whiteness. So the question is only, is my work in the future, my books in the future going to be focused more on different aspects of whiteness? Or are they going to be focused on the narrower whiteness and language education stuff? It, both of them could be good. The, you know, I, I think I'll do a better job at whiteness and language if only because that's where my background is. I think that I could have broader appeal doing different types of whiteness stuff. Like I do want to write about the whole parenting industry and the ideologies behind parenting from a black parent's perspective who grew up in white spaces and has all of these degrees and stuff. I think that there is something there. Uh, who would buy the book? I don't know. I think that's something there. What the second book is, is a question that I've been telling over my head, but I got too much to do to think about. Anyway, so I heard all these stories about IRB and I was like, huh, this is going to be unpleasant. I they did I did what they told me to do. I put exactly what's in my proposal into the uh, protocol system, whatever, at Hunter. And it took me like two hours to do. And I moved on with my life. I had heard that everybody else takes a month, two months, three months to get their things sorted. So I just did stuff for a while. I had another project I was working on and I worked on that. And I started writing, I, I got my diagnosis and, you know, I, I, like I was just doing stuff, but I didn't really do very much in September, honestly. And I had, having finished the book, I, I just didn't do very much for a while. And then I worked on another project for, um, yeah, I worked on another project. Anyway, so in working on that, uh, I went into the system and I checked to confirm because it had been like three weeks and I was like, all right, you know. I, I don't want this to drag on forever. And it turned out that there was like an alert in there that I hadn't completed something. This is the only system in 2021 that does not give you emails or notifications, or at least this is a new system Hunter put together. So maybe it hadn't been fixed yet. I was definitely the first Hunter student well, at least in the education program. But I think I was the first Hunter student to go through it because it started on September 1st and I defended my dissertation proposal on September 8th or something like that. Um, and then I put it into the system on September 10th. So I might, I think I was actually the first Hunter student to go through it as opposed to a faculty member. Um, and maybe it's been fixed now that you get notifications, but there's this alert sitting in there for weeks and I didn't even know I wasted all this time. I go in there Turns out there's some very small nonsense that has to occur, like some different, like I put in my professor's account, but it was her account from the previous system. It was, it was ridiculous, ridiculous. Uh, and I was really mad because I, I don't like having time wasted. And I know I had all this stuff to do and I just, I can't be wasting time. We got it sorted. And then, um, you know, a week later it was through. And then I was like, oh man, I got to actually do this dissertation. It would all seem so far off, you know? But then that's what I did. Um, so that happened and it was early, maybe early October. And I said, all right, I'm sending out these emails. I sent out emails to all of the participants. Um, uh, you're supposed to put in the upper number of people who could possibly respond yes. So if you say, what's the maximum number of participants? I said 20. I had 33 people take my class. These were small classes with like two to six people, average of four. And uh I would say that 23 of them I would classify as white educators, if you consider academics to be educators, and they, they are. Um, three of them I had already talked to for my book over the summer. This was before IRB, IRB had even come to fruition. So basically, I just because it's technically an academic publisher, I just didn't quote them in my book. 
it's just a narrative from like a third person narrative basically about these people's stories it might i don't know we'll see if people like it maybe i'll have to go back and add quotes to it um so if you take those three people out that's 21 and then there was one person where i wasn't sure if they would consider themselves whatever so maybe it's 20 and i sent all this stuff out sent a couple of reminders and Ultimately, I got 10 people who said yes. And 11th person said yes when I was already done with my interviews. So 11 people said yes, but I just, at that point, I was done. Uh, they all said yes. I set up times in the evening to do stuff on Zoom and record it. And uh, I bought a program that helps with data analysis. And I did it. You know, I interviewed all of these people. And let me tell you, interviewing people several times a week is very tiring. I have no idea... There are people who's, you know, this, this is a pretty small study, right? This is 10 people telling me their stories. And ultimately, what I'm realizing in, in the write-up is that it's, it's, it's not going to be 10 stories. It's going to be, and plus my story, because there's 11. Um, it's, it's one master narrative of the classes I taught, right? It's like, what happened to me before the class to allow me to create the class? What happened to these people to allow them to take the class? And what that story is, what they did after the class. Um, yeah, because the, the, the dissertation is called the ESO Project Inquiry. I used to think it was called the ESO Project. It's not. It's an inquiry into the ESO Project. Uh, it's an inquiry into the classes I taught. And we'll teach if I have the time later. But um, as far as now, it's in the past. And... Uh, you know, let me tell you, there's some interesting stuff these people said. I'm not going to tell you what's in it because you, well, who's going to read a dissertation? But it's not finished yet. Uh, but, you know, going through it and, and, you know, putting codes on the on the, on the the transcripts, um, putting subcodes, you know, I'm coming up with a pretty interesting conclusion overall. Um, I don't know if, any, if it'll move the needle. It's not sexy. It's not like I've discovered grit or some shit like that. But uh, it's interesting. I think I think it's compelling. So that's where I am. Uh, I did all the interviews. I got all the transcripts created. I had to go back and edit them to make sure, not alter them, but edit them so that the, the text was right. I put them in the, uh, the system where the uh, data sits. And yeah, I've taken the last couple of weeks as I record this, the next couple of weeks I'm taking off. I'm going out of town for a few days with my mom and my, my wife and baby and stuff. Um, and when I come back from that, which again, as you listen to this, is February, but this is December. Um, right before Christmas is when I'm going to start sprinting. You know, my plan, based on all this, this stuff, is several thousand word sections. Uh, one or two a day, depending, and then a little bit of time for editing. But again, I go through that pretty fast. I, I'm more interested in what the what my my advisor says in the edits. I'm going to underwrite on purpose, as in to say I'm not going to put in too much. I'm not going to put in extra detail uh, because I expect her to come back no matter what I do and tell me she wants more details about this, this, and this. So I'm just going to let her tell me what she wants more details about, and then I'll go back and I'll put it in. Um, if I don't fall on my face here, I, uh, my expect expectation is that I will write my last word on January 25th, uh, and then I will send it to her on January 31st. And then she's going to take two weeks, send it back to me, then I'm going to take two weeks, maybe, maybe three, send it back to her, and then she's going to do it again. And then I'm going to send it to everybody, and then they're going to have a month, and then by early May, I should be able to defend. <sighs> I don't know how I'm doing all this, because um, as I send it to her is when I'm supposed to get my book back, and then I have to edit the book. Hopefully that doesn't require, you know, as much. Although I'm, I'm given several months to edit the book, so if I tell the people of the book that, like, hey, I got to do this dissertation stuff. Um, and then I have another uh, another project to work on starting in like March or April. There's too many. I'm, I'm not saying yes to any more projects. And again, I don't even know if I'm going to have an academic job where these projects are going to matter. I know my CV is going to be pretty impressive as far as these things go by 2023 when the book comes out because hopefully all this other stuff will have come out by the time the book comes out. But uh, And I have another project to edit as I record this two weeks from now. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I ain't keep track of all this stuff. But the last thing I want to mention for the people who really paying attention to all this is this show is changing. The show is changing. I am taking a short hiatus, not like the summer, um, literally just one episode hiatus. So usually it's every other Monday, February. This is the one at the beginning of February. There will not be another one in February. In early March, however, I will return. And the show will be on a new network. I have been approached to, and I have decided to agree to join a network of podcasts called Connected. But one of the E's is missing because people like to stylize their words. Um, and they have some other shows, including Integrated Schools, which you heard me on. Um, and they thought I'd be a valuable part of their network. So I'm joining. What does that mean for you? This is the last one that will be hosted on Anchor. Uh, sorry, Anchor. I don't think you're listening. Um, and I'm going to record the episode through something else called like Megaphone. I don't know, some other system, but it doesn't matter. Um, you may hear a couple of ads. They will not be those horrible Anchor ads that I used to read in the first season. Um, and hopefully the audience will actually grow. Um, I'm lining up some big some big time guests, big time for my little corner of language and race, but you know, for, for the episodes in like March and April. And I think the show will get better. Um, if there's more money coming in from the Patreon and again, feel free to donate. Uh, I will be able to afford better transcriptions. By the way, you know, there are transcriptions, right? They exist. You just have to ask me and I'll send them to you. Um, I <laughs> just a one man show over here and I'm going to, you know, the audio should be better and that sort of thing. Um, frankly, I would love in the future to be able to write books and do podcasts for work, um, and teach sometimes. Um, it's not going to happen anytime soon with the amount of money I need to make to help take care of my family. So it's just going to be a side gig forever, but, um, I think it's really going to be good for the show. I think that... Yeah, these last several episodes I've been by myself, but I think that the conversations that we're going to have in the future and, and you know, what it is that uh, we talk about and, you know, just sort of the issues that come up are really going to be important. I think language can be a tool to fight oppression in general. It can be a tool to reify oppression, but it can also be a tool to fight oppression, and we need it. So hopefully by getting my show to a bigger audience, um, you know, we... Uh, we can get some work done in this world. All right. Thank you.